Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is so great to have you back here with me for another edition of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is the show where we focus on injustice in the broken criminal justice system. One way we do this is by bringing on guests to share their stories of how they've personally experienced injustice in the criminal justice system. We also bring on experts to talk about the criminal justice system and talk about their areas of expertise. And that's what we have today. Today, I am bringing on an expert in many different fields by the name of Mark Pendergrast. We're going to be focusing today talking about repressed memory, specifically in relation to the Jerry Sandusky case. Now, before I introduce Mark, I do have two quick notes for you. First of all, this is episode number 47 of Felony Friday. So that means you can find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash ff 4 And secondly, if you haven't yet visited IgniteLiberty.us, then you haven't seen the Make Liberty Great Again hats and shirts that we have for sale there. Wearing a Make Liberty Great Again shirt or hat is a great way to start a conversation, a great way to spark a fire in someone's mind to talk about the ideas of liberty. And God knows that right now this country needs to have some conversations and needs to talk about the ideas of liberty. Our country is extremely divided right now, as everyone knows, after this crazy election season. And people need to hear about some different solutions, some solutions that they're not hearing in the mainstream media, some solutions that the status quo is not offering them. So please check out IgniteLiberty.us and be sure to enter promo code felony at checkout for 25% off all hat orders. That's right. If you order a Make Liberty Great Again hat at IgniteLiberty.us, enter code felony at checkout for 25% off your order. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. My guest today is Mark Pendergrast. Mark is an investigative journalist and has written several books on a wide range of topics. His book titled For God, Country, and Coca-Cola was named a notable book of the year by the New York Times. Another one of his books, Mir Mir, A History of the Human Love Affair with Reflection, was chosen by Discover Magazine as one of the top science books of the year. He also wrote a controversial book titled Victims of Memory, Sex Abuse Accusation and Shattered Lives, which will be the main focus of today's interview. Pendergrast has given speeches to professional groups, business associations, and college audiences across the globe in the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Germany. He's appeared on dozens of television shows and many, many radio shows. And like I said, I did want to have Mark on to discuss this Jerry Sandusky case, which I've talked about previously on three prior episodes with John Ziegler. So, Mark, welcome to Felony Friday. Hi, John. 
Thank you for coming on the show, Mark. I do appreciate you taking some time to talk about this very important and I think often swept under the rug and ignored phenomenon or I guess theory of repressed memory. And I do want to talk about that. That'll probably be the main focus of the interview. But before we get to talking about that, I mean, you've written books on an incredibly wide range of topics. They're very distinguished and uh, very separate issues. Well, thank you very much you, for paying attention. <laughs> I appreciate that. I was curious. I do want to ask you a little bit about some of those books. But first, where did that passion come from where you found that you wanted to become a writer? Well, it really came from uh, both of my parents. They're very literate people who care about things. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, so it was in the middle of the Deep South, and my parents were very unusual in being liberal, being involved in the civil rights movement and in peace activities, and they taught me to try to, uh, you know, do some good in the world if I could. So that's my real impulse, and my mother is a writer, and my father knew every poem and song in the world, so they were really an inspiration to me. And uh, I started life wanting to be a teacher. I was a high school English teacher, and I got frustrated for a variety of reasons with our public school system, and so I became a librarian. I have a master's in library science, but I wanted – it was sort of an, another way of teaching. And to me, writing is a form of teaching and reaching out to people. So that's really – I still regard myself primarily as a teacher. That's good. That's good. And like I said, you've written books on various topics very far separated from each other. Is there some sort of process or what motivates you to pursue a certain topic? Well, I'm just curious. If I find out something that I think needs a book, then I'll start exploring it. And I'm kind of an obsessive researcher, so I will go very, very deeply into whatever uh, I look at. And that's basically it. I mean, People have asked me what my books have in common. Probably the thing they have most in common is that I don't like Sigmund Freud. <laughs> that, that comes through in a variety of ways in my books. I guess could I ask you to expand on that a little bit? Of what particularly, or I guess do you always just find yourself coming back to disagreements with Sigmund Freud? Is it well, something you know, that you... Well, it's funny. Uh, I wrote this. My first book was A History of Coca-Cola, For God, Country, and Coca-Cola. And it turns out that John Pemberton, who invented Coca-Cola, which originally had a small amount of cocaine in it, was reading the same drug articles that Sigmund Freud was. He was enamored of cocaine at the same time in the middle of the 1880s. So that sort of first piqued my interest. But it was really writing Victims of Memory, my book about repressed memory, that made me really, really look seriously at Freud's theories. And they're totally flawed. He basically made up theories, and then he forced his clients into fitting the theory. So he came up with this theory of repressed memories, that uh, if you were sexually abused, that you totally forgot about it, and then you could remember it later in life. And if you examine his writings on this from like 1895, 1896, which is when he held it, he did abandon his theory pretty quickly. But it's him we can blame for this whole notion. He very clearly forced these ideas on his clients who said, you know, yeah, I'm thinking of this, but it's because you kind of forced it into my head. He would literally – he called it his pressure method. He would lean with all of his weight on top of people's foreheads until they said what he wanted. So this uh, repressed memory, this uh, psychological technique, I guess it's almost – I guess it's not an interrogation because it's used on – potential victims. But when did this start to be widely used 
in the United States? Well, it really became widely used after 1988. There was a book published called The Courage to Heal by Ellen Bass and Laura Davis, which became sort of the Bible of the recovered memory movement, and it spawned a whole set of other similar books. So that's what really launched it. And so the height of the repressed memory epidemic was around the the early 1990s. Books like mine came out in the mid-1990s, mine and several others. And also there were lawsuits by people who realized that they had been had, that this was not true, and it ruined their lives, their marriages, their sanity, and they were suing their former therapist. So that helped to put a stop to it as well. But it was quite a huge phenomenon, which has sort of been swept under the rug by the psychological establishment. They like to say that it was just a few fringe therapists, but it was not. It was a mainstream thing. About 25% of the therapists in the United States in 1992 were specializing in this type of therapy, where if you went to somebody and you had any problem whatsoever, whether you were depressed or you had a, a bad relationship, or you had an eating disorder, particularly if you were a woman, they would say, well, were you ever sexually abused? And if you said no, they would say, well, that means you probably were because, you know, you have all the symptoms of sexual abuse and therefore you must have been and you repress the memory. And until you remember it, you're not going to get better. And so that was highly motivating, as you can imagine. You know, you're going to therapy because you're troubled, you're seeking answers, and somebody tells you that this is it. You're very motivated to try to find out whether it could possibly be true or not. And so you'd say, well, how would I find out? Well, we could hypnotize you, or you might dream about it, or you might have a body memory where some body part of yours hurts, where you were, were hurt by somebody. And what happened was it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, it set up an expectation effect that you were totally obsessed with finding out if this was true. And then, of course, you would dream about it. Or, you know, I used to think hypnosis was a great way to uh, delve into your subconscious, but that's not true at all. It's a good way to suggest you into something. That's why hypnosis can be very useful if you want to stop smoking, for instance. You have informed consent. That's what you're trying to do. But it's, it's a terrible way to delve for supposed memories. When we were emailing back and forth, Mark, you mentioned that there was a, a sex abuse hysteria. And I do want to come back to re repressed memory. We'll talk about that more with in relation to the Jerry Sandusky trial. Can you explain what you mean by that, by the term sex abuse hysteria? Yes. If you were accused of the crime of child sexual abuse, you are basically going to be judged guilty until proven innocent. And since you generally can't prove that unless you have some alibi that you weren't there whenever the allegations arose, and often the allegations, as in the Sandusky case, are so vague in time that there's really no way you can defend yourself. And since the oh, 1980s, when the daycare hysteria cases were happening, where there was this idea that, you know, everybody in daycares was being abused and they were interviewing the preschoolers and about a hundred daycares. It really has been a form of hysteria. Let me make clear also that for years, real sexual abuse 
was swept under the rug and wasn't recognized. In fact, Freud, you can blame him for that, too. (laughs) Once he changed his mind about repressed memories, he said, oh, it was just an Oedipus complex. It was people fantasizing about incest. And so when people really were sexually abused, particularly within a family, for a long time, psychoanalysts would say, oh, you're just imagining that. At any rate, the pendulum in our society tends to swing violently in one way or another. And we have now for several decades been in what amounts to a form of sex abuse hysteria. And, and so if anybody is accused by anybody, it's, it's sort of the nuclear bomb you can drop in a contested uh, custody or divorce case. It's also what students can do to their teachers. And it's, uh, in the Sandusky case, become an unrecognized method for some of the civil attorneys to send people to try to get them to, quote, remember abuse that occurred. In fact, the very first victim number one, Aaron Fisher, was sent to counselor. And, you know, when he first said that he was concerned about Sandusky, he didn't claim any kind of sexual abuse. He just said that he hugged him and cracked his back with their clothes on. So it was only after being in therapy very intensely for many months that he came up with uh, real sexual abuse. It was actually many months, and I read uh, two of the articles uh, you've written on this Jerry Sandusky case. And in the one article, you talked about that for a long period of time during those months, when he's speaking with this therapist, that he would only answer, maybe the therapist told him to only answer in yes, no that's answer right. his questions with yes or no. Boy, you really read my stuff. It's incredibly leading methodology. You know, when you're asking people questions about their lives or about possible abuse, you're supposed to ask open-ended, non-leading questions. Instead, Mike Gillum said, this is from their book, Silent No More. He said, you know, I would guess what had happened to people. I could tell what had happened to people, and I would tell them and all they had to do is answer yes or no and so you know notoriously in a situation like that a client is trying to sort of please the therapist and is seeking to figure out what they should say and you can read their body language and you can read their voice inflection so it was just a bad methodology like you said aaron fisher was the first of the alleged sandusky victims there were at the trial there were eight that testified i believe and there were two other charges the one victim at the time the prosecution claimed was only known to god and the other one a victim never came forward but of of the eight that did testify how many of those eight was this repressed memory technique used You know, it's hard to say because at the original trial and what we really have to go on are either the police reports I've been able to unearth or the uh, trial transcripts. And Joe Amendola and Carl Rominger, who were the uh, attorneys for Sandusky, were totally clueless about repressed memory. In fact, when some of the people testified and said, you know, I've had help remembering in counseling, they thought they were talking about like the, the counsel being a lawyer or something, and they just glossed right over it. So they didn't really ask. But if you look at some of them, such as uh, Dustin Struble, he made it very clear that it was repressed memory. And, you know, when I read it, that's what really sort of piqued my interest. And 
you know, he was the only one that I've been able to uh, actually speak to uh, about this. And he, he said, yes, it was, you know, it was repressed memories, and that's how I remembered all this. There are indications for several other ones that it was involved. We know that a number of them were in therapy, and there are indications of some of them saying, you know, I didn't remember this, and then I remembered more later, and the therapy helped me, et cetera. So I can't prove it in many of the cases unless we could actually get hold of their therapy records. Right, right. So is this typical in today's legal system? Is this typical what happened in the Sandusky case where there really was no evidence? It was all based on what these victims said there were really a lot of the charges. There were no dates. There was nothing, you know, there were no real witnesses other than the uh, the shower incident, which that's a whole other story by itself. Yeah, which I hope we'll talk about. That's what I just wrote a whole article about. Yeah, yeah. I definitely do want to. Actually, let's talk about that now because that's fresh in everyone's mind. Victim number two did just testify at a hearing for mm-hmm. a Jerry Sandusky appeal, yeah, correct? Yeah, his name is Alan Myers. And, I mean, it's a fascinating case because – he went right after the presentment uh, happened in uh, November of 2011, I believe it was, when, you know, all hell broke loose. That was where they said that Mike McQuarrie witnessed a Jerry Sandusky sodomizing a child in the shower. Alan Myers came forward and said, and he came to uh, Joe Amendola's office and told his investigator, Curtis Everhart, I was the kid in the shower, and Sandusky not only did not abuse me, he was a father figure to me, he was a highly influential person in my life, he came to my wedding, uh, he stood up for me at my senior football game as my father, etc. And, you know, I linked to that interview in my article on thecrimereport.org, which I hope people will go look at. So then, a couple of weeks later, He had a a DUI, apparently, and the lawyer he went to was Andrew Shubin, who ended up representing quite a few of the Sandusky alleged victims. And he flipped, apparently. He decided Sandusky had abused him, and he's one of the many, I think 33 now, people who have collected millions of dollars from Penn State for alleged Sandusky abuse. The interesting thing is he never testified at the trial. Both sides were afraid to call him, apparently. The prosecution didn't want to call him because he never actually would say he was abused. And I have documents showing that uh, the police, the prosecutors, were very frustrated and felt that Shubin was the one who was telling them this stuff, not Myers. And then the defense was afraid to call him because he had flipped and gone over to say that he had been abused, supposedly. I think it was a big, big mistake. They should have called him and put him under oath, but which is what they did at this hearing, finally. So he finally did testify, but nobody asked him a whole lot of details. They just said, did you say this? Did you say that no abuse had occurred? And he said, yeah, that's what I said then, but that's not what I would say now. My hypothesis is that, number one, he wouldn't say it now because he's collected a lot of money, and that would might put it in jeopardy. And number two, I think he's probably been in therapy. So I'm not sure what he, quote, remembers now. Let me just make it clear that this repressed memory therapy, it's not like people are lying. You can come to believe, and this was startling to me, you can come to believe in great detail 
that horrible things happen to you that never occurred if you rehearse them long enough. If you know, if you watch a horror movie and you become totally involved in it and you become totally scared, or if you watch a movie that's really sad and you cry, you know that's not true, don't you? And yet it still affects you. Well, how much more is it effective if you come to believe that you have buried this memory in your subconscious and now you've remembered it and you rehearse it over and over again and it becomes more real than your real memories? So what's the process for, I guess the problem I have with this is myself, I think that I have a terrible memory. I mean, I'm, I'm 33 years old and there's not too much I can remember about high school. I have little bits of memory, you know, maybe it might have something to do with the fact that I played high school football, probably took some blows to the head, but I don't think my memory is particularly good. I have a hard time imagining or figuring out how can a memory be created? What's the process that these therapists use in order to really fabricate a memory. How is that done? Well, let's say that you were in a football game and you got hit really hard and you had a concussion. And let's say that you go to a therapist and they say, well, you know, I suspect that while you were having that concussion, or let's say that they tell you that probably something happened to you when you were much younger. What do you remember about second grade? Well, I don't remember anything about second grade. Well, then something terrible must have happened then. So let's explore that. So they can build on things that really did happen. Let's say that they decide that maybe your mother had done something to you. What do you remember about your mother? Let's hypnotize you, and you can go back in time, and we'll have you think about her. Do you remember her uh, kissing you goodnight? What did she smell like? Did she wear perfume? And so they'll bring you back to something like that that's quite real. And you do begin to remember things like that. But they've got you with this expectation that she must have done something terrible to you because you're having problems in your life and this would explain it. And they tell you that maybe other people remembered your mother doing something to you, which is what they did with Sandusky. And so if you buy into this, if you don't know how memory really works, because the fact is, if you were sexually abused, you remember it perfectly well. You might not talk about it, but you remember it. Unless you're like, you know two years old or something, which is a whole other story. So uh, if you're motivated to try to remember something and you begin to picture something that was real, you can build things onto it. So, for instance, Sandusky really did have kids spend the night at his house. He really did have showers with kids. He did a lot of things that we would think are unusual and weird, but for him didn't seem unusual and weird because he grew up in this sort of uh, recreation center that his parents ran and it was normal for him but he was a touchy-feely guy you know if you were riding with him in a car he would reach over and squeeze your leg or your knee so you could build on that considering well there must be stuff that i've forgotten that was so terrible that i can't remember it and then you begin to picture those things and it's like running a movie in your head or, you know, a lot of these therapists back in the classic heyday of it in the 90s, they told people they didn't need to remember anything specific. If you thought you were abused or you might have been abused, then you probably were. If you had the symptoms of it, like you were depressed or whatever, then it was probably true. And you could just act on that. And then eventually, hopefully, you would remember some, something for real. So I hope that's answering your question. Yeah, I think so. So it's really they're starting with things that you would actually remember and building from there. And these therapists, you know, they're not uh, nefarious people. They think they're using it, probably a proven technique, a, a proven theory. That's true. 
what I found was that I will say some of the therapists were sociopaths <laughs> that, that I was investigating back in the 90s, but most of them were just well-meaning people who were ignorant about how memory worked and you know had bought into this whole Freudian theory that Freud himself had abandoned you know, 100 years ago. And because repressed memory therapy has been so widely discredited, Nobody talks about it anymore, and people, you know, certainly the lawyers aren't going to say, well, this is how it happened. So it kind of went underground, but it has not disappeared at all. I cited a couple of studies that were done quite recently showing that, I don't remember what, for something like 75% of college students believe in this theory. They say, oh, yeah, you can repress memories. You can repress traumatic memories and forget them and then remember them later, and a similar number of therapists still believe that, and particularly less educated therapists believe that. People like with uh, masters in social work or, uh, you know, people who just call themselves therapists. That brings up another question. So you're saying that this Freudian theory of repressed memory has been discredited, but there's still lots of therapists that are using it, and, and college students, 75% of them think it's real. So where Something is that like coming that. from? I, have, there's... I wrote an article once called The Bloated Corpse. <laughs> you know, how a corpse keeps rising to the surface. It's right, right. And rise. Once you get an idea in the mainstream in a culture, it's almost impossible to eradicate it. It's like – that Obama wasn't born in the United States or something. I mean, once people glom onto something, it just won't go away. And repressed memory is like that. Also, it was very useful for Alfred Hitchcock movies and other movies. And there was a whole television show about repressed memory a couple of years ago. So it makes for very good novels and drama. It's a good plot device, even if it's not true. And then people will, you know, people have told me, well, I know it's true because I saw this movie or I read this book. Must be true. Do the, uh, you know, the leaders in the field of psychology, do they, you know, not believe this anymore? Is it not taught in schools, repressed memory? It's not taught in school generally. And generally, they will at least cover it as a very, very controversial era. But usually they, they don't really dwell on it because it's embarrassing that like several million of these cases of false memory happened in the late 80s, early 90s, I think. I estimated that in my book. So there's also a major split within the psychological field. There, experimental psychologists almost universally think that repressed memories are hogwash because there's absolutely no evidence that you can really repress memories, and there's plenty of evidence experimental evidence that you can induce false memories. But clinical psychologists, some of them have done research and understand how memory actually works and how human suggestibility works and are very, very alarmed at this. But some of them aren't. And, you know, it's the clinical psychologists or the psychiatrists or the people who are, you know, doing therapy with people that many of them still believe in this. So it hasn't totally gone away by any means. It's interesting because when you look at this Jerry Sandusky case, I'm not sure if he's going to get another trial. I certainly think he definitely should get another trial because the first trial, I mean, you can't even consider it anywhere remotely fair from his counsel. I don't think they really did a good enough job defending him, um, which is you know mainly what they are staking his appeal on. 
But with all that being said, even if during his trial, during his first trial, if his lawyers had brought up that, you know, repressed memory was used or they suspect it was used and really drilled down on each of these victims, do you think that would even be enough at that time to overturn, to not have him convicted? Because like you're saying, once something gets out there, like repressed memory as being a real thing, it's polluted the jury pool. The jury pool is going to think it's a real thing. And then who do you believe at that point? You're going to believe the prosecution or you're going to believe the defense? Well, you know, if they had known what was going on, what they should have done was to have a hearing specifically like on whether any kind of testimony should be allowed based on repressed memories. They could have had a pretrial hearing where they could have gotten experts on both sides, people like Elizabeth Loftus, who I quoted in my book and who wrote a book about repressed memories, who's like the foremost experimental psychologist on memory distortion in the world. They could have had her testify and say, explain everything I'm explaining to you right now. And that might have made a difference. But to be honest with you, who knows? Because we don't know. And certainly the atmosphere that the trial was held in was of complete hysteria. You're absolutely right that Amendola was completely unprepared for this. Very few people understand that before the trial started, he went to the judge and said, I want to withdraw. I'm totally unprepared. I haven't had time even to go through all the material. People years from now will be saying how horrible this was. And the judge said, no, you got to go through with it. And he did. So it's amazing to me that Amendola now is saying, oh, I did a great job and nothing would have been different. Because right there at the beginning, he was saying it was terrible. Let me make one other thing clear, John. I think repressed memories were key to this case, but they're not the only thing going on here. You know, John Ziegler, who's been on your show, has made a, a point that's very valid, and it's follow the money. Money is a very powerful motivator, and, you know, some people may have simply, frankly, made up things. It's also possible, of course, that Sandusky really is guilty and did all this. It's kind of hard for me to conceive that he was dumb enough to keep having showers and everything when he was abusing people and people saw him, etc., to do all that. And, you know, I visited him, I've interviewed all of his children, and, you know, all of his children were adopted. He and Dottie couldn't have any children biologically. If somebody is a pedophile, they are attracted to children, and it begins to show at least by the time they're in their 20s, generally speaking. It's difficult to believe that he would not have uh, molested any of his sons, and yet all of them told me he didn't. With the exception of one being uh, oh, Matt Sandusky. Yeah. Well, Matt Sandusky is a whole other case. He did go to repressed memory therapy. He talked about it to the police. He talked about it on Oprah. And so, yeah, that's a whole other another story. He was the very last one that was adopted, and he begged to be adopted, basically, uh, when he was, I think, 18 or 19. Yeah, I was going to say, I believe he was over the age of 18 when he was adopted. So I, I do want to ask you about uh, solitary confinement. I know that Ziegler's talked about this before as well, that Sandusky's spending you know, 95% of his day, maybe more than that, in solitary confinement. 23 hours a day. 23 hours a day. Can you imagine what this is like? And this is not unusual. I mean, the reason that they give for keeping him 
in solitary confinement is that, you know, sex abusers are notoriously uh, victimized in prison and he wouldn't be safe in a general prison population. I don't know if that's true or not. I'd like to think it's not true. He's a perfectly harmless 70-year-old guy uh, who's never been violent in any way. So it would be hard to imagine. They're saying it's for his safety, though. They're saying it's for his safety, but he's been really, really mistreated from everything that I have been told by him and by his wife. You know, she can't ever touch him. He is trying to keep in some sort of shape by doing exercise in his cell. But it's psychological torture, as you can imagine. It's very difficult to keep up your morale. I'm reading a book at the moment. It just came out called 23-7, which means 23 hours in solitary confinement, seven days a week. And the subtitle is Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary by Karamet Ryder. And it's not a big page turner, but it's just appalling how prevalent this is at our supermax prisons and how this has become sort of standard fare. I've visited a number of prisoners that I think are innocent in the past 20 years. And every time I go to a prison, I feel as if I am a prisoner, that I did something wrong. You know, you can't wear blue jeans, or if you're a woman, you can't wear jewelry, I think, earrings or something. I once visited somebody where I crossed my legs, and they said, no, no, you can't do that. You have to put both feet on the floor at all times. <laughs> like, excuse me, does this make any sense at all? They just make you feel weird. And prisons are like that. They talk about a terrible culture. So I think this has been very enlightening for Jerry Sandusky. If he ever does get out, I hope he will become an activist for the way our prison system works, which is terrible. Yeah, and we've talked about solitary confinement a lot on this show before, and it seems to me that, you know, with Sandusky here, it's a a security problem that the prison is perceiving. So in order to solve it, they just put Jerry Sandusky in solitary confinement. They do the exact same thing if they have someone who's mentally ill. Rather than get them treatment, rather than help them, they just put them in solitary confinement. There was one case that I was looking into several months ago, and I forget this gentleman's name. But he had mental problems and he had been in solitary confinement for the past 30 years. I mean, that's that is just inhumane. That's barbaric. It is barbaric. You ought to get this woman on here, Karamit Ryder, on your show. It's terrible. I just got an email from somebody because I volunteer for a, an innocence project called the National Center for Reason and Justice. And I won't reveal his name because it's privileged. But this guy was in prison for two years prior to being charged with anything. And he does have mental health issues. And he also has a colostomy bag. And it kept falling off of him. So he's covered with excrement. He was in solitary confinement for two years, never having been convicted of anything. He had supposedly watched child pornography, which he had apparently, according to him, happened onto or something. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But what an insane system we have that would do that to somebody. Anyway, yes. Yeah, it's terrible. And I mean, I think the only way that we can change the system, because unfortunately, our mainstream media doesn't talk about any of these things. They don't talk about how broken the prison system is. They don't talk about solitary confinement. They don't talk about any of these issues. Is to talk about this on podcasts and and try to educate our friends and neighbors on things that need to be changed because they're not going to hear about anywhere else. You're absolutely right. And, you know, 
if somebody is in prison, they're out of sight and out of mind. Politicians, there's nothing in it for a politician to be, quote, soft on crime. So we have a prison industrial complex in our country that is making millions and millions and millions of dollars for people taking advantage of keeping people locked up. We have more people in our prisons, you certainly know this, than any other country in the world by quantity and by percentage. It's just appalling. And we have now elected somebody who is going to be worse than anybody about this from what I can figure out. I mean, maybe Donald Trump is going to have some enlightenment now that he's really the president. But everything he has said has been horrible. For instance, he took out a full-page ad saying that the uh, Central Park Five should be killed. These were the innocent young black men who were accused Mm -hmm. of raping the girl in Central Park. This is after they were proven to be innocent that he took out the ad? No, he took out the ad when uh, everybody thought they were guilty. But it's still – and he's never apologized for that. And he's never acknowledged that they're innocent. Yeah, unfortunately, though, I don't know. Between the two choices we had, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I don't think it would have been any better under Hillary Clinton either. So I do, but we'll never know. (laughs) And I hope I'm wrong about Trump. I hope he turns out to be this wonderful, compassionate guy who's not going to uh, throw everybody in prison, including uh, illegal immigrants, and throw away the key. Yeah. One thing about Trump that could be good, hopefully he he still remembers it. I remember back when he was a Democrat, he was actually in favor of ending the war on drugs. So that that would be huge. That would be gigantic. That would be absolutely wonderful because, yeah, I mean, what did we learn from prohibition? Nothing. Exactly. Nothing. You know, when we tried to make alcohol illegal, what happened was exactly what's happened in the war on drugs. A lot of people got killed. A lot of uh, criminals made a lot of money. And more and more people got bad alcohol that killed them. And the same thing happens with drugs. So you and me are on the same page there. Well, Mark, we could probably talk about the criminal justice systems and and the failures of the criminal justice system for many more hours. (laughs) But uh, I'm running out of time. I do want to uh, ask you what else you're working on now and where people, where the Felony Friday audience can find, find your current work and find your books. Well, my uh, website is a good place to go. It's just markpendergrast.com, M-A-R-K-P-E-N-D-E-R-G-R-A-S-T.com. And people can write to me directly from that website. It goes to my email. And you can see the different variety of books I've written. I'm working on this book about Sandusky right now. And I hope I'm going to get a contract for it shortly. I've written a good deal of it. You know, it's been surprising to me that I haven't sold it already because it's obviously, you know, a very controversial case that would get a lot of attention. But it's like a toxic thing. It's bizarre. Nobody wants to hear this. Yeah, it's one of the cases where, you know, I've had friends uh, get mad at me for even wanting to talk about it. It is bizarre. Well, you know, what I'm saying is maybe he's guilty, maybe he's innocent. But nobody has taken a really hard look at it other than John Ziegler and a few other people. And the assumption is that he's, you know, that's it. And you're right. People get very, very upset or often they do. I don't want to act like I understand why people get upset. I mean, when you think of the thought of this, if it is true, what he did is absolutely horrific. I mean, that's horrific crimes. But the thing is, if you start looking into it, the evidence just simply is not there that he was even able to do what he's been charged with. But 
anyway, Mark, we, we, can, we can talk about this for much longer. But I, I hope you do get a contract for that book. And uh, if you do, I would love to have you back on to talk about it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You take care. This episode is airing the day after Thanksgiving. And first, I want to thank you all for listening to this show. And I also want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you, each and every one of our loyal listeners for supporting and sharing the Lions of Liberty podcast. All of us here at Lions of Liberty are so thankful to have such an engaging audience that shares our passion for advancing the ideas of liberty. This is increasingly visible as our Lions of Liberty forum on Facebook just continues to grow. Uh, when we started this website, which has turned into a podcast now, you know, we had no idea what to expect. And I just want to let you guys know that we're thankful for each and every one of you. You know, we want to thank you for listening to the show and sharing the show with others, because without you guys, you know, we'll just be talking to ourselves. So thank you so much. And hopefully you enjoy today's show. Today's interview with Mark Pendergrast. This is not an easy topic, obviously, to talk about. And that's why most people just won't touch topics like this. Child abuse is abhorrent. It's terrible. It's horrible. And anyone who abuses a child deserves to do the time for that crime. But as we've learned through interviews with John Ziegler, which I'll, of course, link to on the show notes page, and through today's interview with Mark Pendergrast, in some of these cases, in this case in particular, Jerry Sandusky case, people get caught up in the emotion of the charges, and they allow that emotion to really cloud their judgment rather than looking at the charges and looking to see if the evidence is there. The emotion and the sheer number of victims really, in this case, this Jerry Sandusky case, absolve the prosecution from actually building a case based on evidence and truth. And it's really a shame. And unfortunately, right after this interview with Mark, some news broke that the judge in this Jerry Sandusky case has actually recused himself in the hearing for Jerry Sandusky to get a new trial. The judge in that hearing has recused himself, and it's complicated. But to make a long story short, essentially what this is just going to do is delay the process, stretch the process out for Jerry Sandusky to get a new trial. And Jerry Sandusky is an old man. And as we talked about during the interview, he is in solitary confinement. So things are not looking good for any chance of Jerry to get a new trial. I'll link some details to that news in the show notes as well. So be sure to check that out. Also remember, guys, I welcome feedback on the shows. So please send me an email with guest suggestions, comments on the shows, or questions. You can send it to Friday at lionsofliberty.com. And I talked about the Facebook forum that we have before the Lions of Liberty forum. If you're not a member yet, you might want to consider checking that out. It's growing rapidly. Uh, you can do that just by going to Facebook, putting Lions of Liberty forum in the search bar at the top. It'll pop up and we'll get you approved as long as you don't look like a raging lunatic. Another way that you can help the show is by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty on iTunes. If you have an iPhone or on Stitcher Radio, if you have an Android or any other number of podcast apps, it really helps us with the algorithms, especially with iTunes. 
The more subscribers we get, the more comments, the more five-star ratings that we get on iTunes. That helps in the algorithm to get our show rated better, which at the end of the day helps us to spread the message of liberty. So that'd be greatly appreciated. And lastly, I just want to encourage you to please share the show. If you like what you're listening to, if you're still listening right now, then please just take a moment out of your day, share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, send it out an email to friends. Send it out a text message. Send it out on WhatsApp. Please, if you like what you're listening to, please share it and help us to spread the message of liberty. That's it for today, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>